You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I don't feel old. A long time ago, when my dad, who's right there, turned 40, somebody in the family, I think it was my crazy Aunt Kathy, bought him a cup, a mug that said, 40 isn't old if you're a tree. And I laughed super hard. And now I'm turning 40, and I want to apologize. That is inappropriate and mean and not in good taste. So I take back all the laughs. So what we'll do is I'll allow you to read the gospel today. Ah, thank you. A reading from Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go hurry and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's okay to get a little mad at Jesus in in these texts right here. The the Holy Spirit wants you to hear Jesus' response and get annoyed. I would like to go bury my father. And Jesus says, no, come follow me. Should annoy us a little bit. I'd like to come follow you. Well, I have nowhere to rest my head. And doesn't say anything else. And the guy's like, um, not sure how to respond. So I'll go back to my initial, forget it. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. I was looking back to say goodbye to my family. Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And if you say that to him, say, Jesus, what do these verses mean? He'll probably say, yes. And you're like, I don't understand anything right now, but I'm just going to get up there and preach, I guess. So sometimes I pray, Lord, somewhere between my mouth and their ears, do something with the sound that is coming out of my mouth before it gets to them. Make it better, because sometimes you're confusing. We are in a summer series called Apocalypse, removing the new normal to uncover the ordinary. Removing the new normal to uncover the ordinary. We're in what is called ordinary time. 
and ordinary time is all the time that exists after the Holy Spirit falls on the church and fills the church with himself. Ordinary time is your life full of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, if we could receive the fact that the Holy Spirit being in us is ordinary, we maybe wouldn't exhaust ourselves trying to be extraordinary all the time, realizing that some of that isn't real. God doesn't want us to be extraordinary. He wants us to be ordinary because the rich and the poor, black and white, young and old, and everything in between can all relate to the ordinary, the regular, the mundane, the everydayness of life. When God shows up there, God can show up for everybody. And so this isn't a competition to be bigger and better every year. This is actually an invitation for us to settle down and be still. Apocalypse, as we talked about last week, is not the end of the world destruction that modern theology and modern media and movies, they tell us that the apocalypse is a mushroom cloud because of an atomic bomb and its wars and its earthquakes. The apocalypse is not destruction. The apocalypse, as defined in the Bible, is an uncovering, a revealing of how Jesus is in all the places in the world that's sick and wants to infect the sickness with his righteousness. When the covers come off, we find Jesus is where everything is breaking down. Jesus is where things are the darkest. Jesus is where the, the hinge is turning on relationships and they're going from healthy to unhealthy. Jesus is in the space of that transition and he's healing. An apocalypse, unveiling, recovering, these things show us what God wants to heal. This is early in the message, but it's an important point, and we said it last week. And thank you, Danielle, for opening the door for repetition. I'm going to say it again. The first apocalypse in the Bible is not when you turn to Revelation and read about Armageddon. The first apocalypse in the Bible is when Adam and Eve sin and think they're not worthy to stand in the presence of God, and they hide. And they're there's two times where an apocalypse happens. First, God says, come out from behind the trees. And they are revealed to him. That's an apocalypse. There's an unveiling. Where are you? There you are. Come out. You are worthy to stand in my presence. Say, well, Adam and Eve sinned, separated them from God. The first thing that happens when they sin is they hear what? The sound of God running away from them the sound of God kicking them out? No. It's the sound of God coming and saying, my children, where are you? What's happened? I'm here. Well, didn't he kick them out of the garden? Yes. And for the rest of the Bible, went with them. The whole rest of the Bible is God having left Eden with them, bringing them back. You can let that sink in for a moment. Not many of us were taught that. But the second apocalypse was when God says, you've covered yourselves with fig leaves. I have a different covering for you. Take off the fig leaves. And there's an exposing of their shame and guilt and destruction. And what does he do with it? 
he covers it with his blood, with animal skins. Something is sacrificed in the Garden of Eden on their behalf right away, and they're covered with animal skins. And so the apocalypse is God revealing what is true and honest and healing it. And in that moment, creation is then finally introduced to Adam and Eve. There are so many of us, myself included, where we spend so much of our time hiding not even what's wrong, but what we're insecure about. Because most of what we're insecure about isn't wrong. It's just we have a misperception of what it is. We spend so much of our time traveling and being ambitious and being big and being colorful and being all these things and exhausting ourselves with high energy and movement and all kinds of stuff to hide from the issues that we really don't want to face. And when we do that, we're no longer in a relationship with our own self and therefore don't have true relationships with each other because until I know me, I can't fully offer myself to you. When we're honest, like Danielle up here before saying, who actually needs help? And it was on the third request that we said, oh yeah, no, we need help. It's in the minute that we can finally be honest. Every one of you needs help. It's when we can finally be honest that we are actually reintroduced to ourselves, and then reintroduced to each other and we can say, oh, there you actually are. Apocalypse is God saying to you, be honest with what's real. You're mad at me? Tell me. You don't believe in me anymore? Say it. You're struggling with what's going on in the world and me being a good God? Talk to me about it. You don't like your body? Tell me. You feel uncomfortable with who you are, where you're at in life? You think you're too old to be doing what you're doing or too young and don't know how to do what you're doing? Whatever it is, be honest. The minute we are honest, we are in the light as he is in the light. And it's in that space that he will reintroduce ourselves to our own self. Apocalypse has been hijacked by the devil to be a fearful term of destruction because Satan does not want us to know what it really is. It's not the end times. It is the everyday reality of God saying, show me what's real, and you'll realize I've been healing it all along. So all summer, we're going to talk about how when Jesus' presence shows up anywhere, whatever the text is, there's an apocalypse happening. There's a revealing of what is disordered and an immediate recovering of what should be. We said last week that in a world of tumult and yelling, our views at each other. Has anybody heard a little controversy this week? We do not have the muscle to speak in disagreement lovingly with each other. The church needs to go to the gym and work out that muscle. We cannot look at the world and say, we will be in a relationship with you once you agree. Raise your hand if you're married. How many of you have agreed all of the time? Stuart, put your hand down for the love of God. If agreement is the sign of a good marriage, somebody please text me the number to a good marriage counselor because we disagreed 14 times this morning, today, probably right now while I'm saying this. I'm doing something wrong. It's a fair bet. We don't really have the muscle. And so 
one way that we learn to strengthen, hi Jacqueline, to strengthen the part of us that can hold a relationship together while there's disagreement, the way there is everybody's favorite word, stillness. Nothingness. Not doing anything. We said this last week. I'm going to sit down and be quiet for 15 minutes, and I'm going to read. No. I'm going to sit down for 15 minutes and be quiet, and I'm going to listen to stop it. I'm going to sit down, and I'm just going to recite. No, you're not. I'm going to be on you all summer. Do nothing for 10 minutes. In stillness, you will hear God in silence. And when you can learn to hear him in silence, you will hear him every other place because silence exists in everything that is making noise. Elijah didn't see him in the fire. He didn't see him in the wind. He didn't see him in the earthquake. It wasn't that God wasn't there. It's that he didn't learn how to hear silence yet. And once he learned to hear silence, then he could hear him in the fire, the wind, and the earthquake. Everybody say stillness. One thing that stillness will give us when we, when we learn how to embrace it for the blessing that it is, one thing that stillness will give us is the ability to still be in somebody's life after it seems we shouldn't have been. When we can learn stillness and learn to hear God in the quiet that exists in the chaos around us, people will say, I can't believe you're still here. Because we've achieved stillness. Stillness isn't just the calming. Stillness is also faithfulness. It's I'm still here with you. We sing that song, I'm still amazed. I hear that and I think to myself, after all I've done wrong in my life, how am I still captivated by you? Because God is so still, he will never leave me or forsake me. He's still in my life. Because he's stillness itself. So we can either decide to join this back and forth tsunami of complete chaos and try to get everyone on our side of the line, or we can be better as a church and realize that God, everything you're going through in your life right now, is designed by God to unveil what needs to be recreated in you and what he's already doing to accomplish that. In the beginning, he could say, let there be, and there was, because there wasn't anything distorting it yet. So he could speak directly, let there be, and there was. But now that we've kind of put layers of sin on that perfection, it's not just let there be, it's let me remove, let me take away, let me excavate, and then I can say let there be again. But every situation you're going through, the peace that you're finding in the storm, or the storm that God's giving you in your peace... All of it is designed to reveal to you where we need to be recreated so that we can be still and that we can still be faithful. That's what Apocalypse is all about. That's why it's been hijacked. That's why the Left Behind series is a joke because it's a, di it's a distortion. If we're left behind, God's like, I'm staying with them because that's what he does. Don't look at me confused. You know it's right in your bones, even if you heard it differently. You know he won't leave you or forsake you. You know his love is un what? Unconditional. There's no condition where he won't stop. He's relentless and annoying. In your business, won't get out of it. 
and he knows how to be in our business. He knows how to show up through a locked door and keep the door locked, not violate, but still be in our business. So Jesus, all for the last few chapters, is doing nothing but blessing the Samaritans, the group of people that is oppressed by the powers that be, the group of people that are cast aside, enslaved, all of this kind of stuff. Jesus just keeps being there for the Samaritans and teaching people to be there for them as well. And then Jesus goes to Samaria, and it says in the text uh, that Frank read today that he went there to make preparations. It is presumed that he wanted to have the Last Supper in Samaria. And it says that his face was set to Jerusalem. And when the Samaritans saw that Jesus was all about going to Jerusalem, they rejected Jesus. After all he did... They're like, we will really only follow you if you stay with us the way we want you to be with us. This is sensitive waters right now. Because if you listen carefully to the narrative in our culture, there is a group of people that have been under the thumb of the powerful. Then, because of that abuse, they get angry and upset and also start to lash out. So other people in the powerful side say, see, they're acting exactly the way that they said we were acting. That's what's happening in this text right now. And here's the thing. Listen, Jesus doesn't rebuke the Samaritans for rejecting him. Because when you've been abused the Spirit gives you allowance to climb out of that abuse. Even if it means you showing anger. Even if it means you showing frustration. It is not the same as when the majority power, powerful group does it that when the abused group does it. Maybe an easier example is the child that's being abused by the dad. How many know it's very different when the dad hits the child than when the child finally swings back for the first time? These are different things. If we say they're the same, we're going to do a lot of damage to people's healing. Can, can you swim with me in these waters for a moment? Jesus isn't thrilled with them rejecting him. Who would be? But he doesn't rebuke them for it. He knows it is the honest reaction to what happens when you've been living under the abuse of a parent, a friend, a culture, a system, however big or small you want to make that. Jesus understands that when he shows up, there's going to be freedom. And when there's freedom, any of us who have been abused on any level are going to finally be able to express ourselves for the first time because some people haven't had the agency to even self-express. And when they do, everyone in power is going to say, see, now you're acting, just, you're acting just like the dad that you said was treating you poorly. And Jesus is like, not so fast. He's breathing for the first time. He's finding himself for the first time. He's being true to himself for the first time. It's not the exact way I want it to go, but it's different. The disciples quote the Bible because everybody knows when you use Scripture, you're always right. Except Satan used Scripture. Well, my own musings. They say, we got a good verse for this. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and burn the Samaritans? Again, it's always that powerful group that the minute it seems like their power is kind of leaking away, we eliminate. 
And Jesus says, in most other translations than the ESV, he says, he rebukes them, that's what it says in all of them, and in most other translations it says, you don't know what spirit you're of. But we quoted the Bible. So obviously it's a good spirit. And Jesus is like, Satan quoted the Bible, and he's not a very good spirit. Fair? I'm not taking leaps. He rebukes them for wanting to eliminate the Samaritans. This Salem is an apocalypse. Jesus shows up, and the effects of abuse immediately are seen. They're rejecting the one trying to save them, just like Israel did with Moses, just like Judah did with David, just like the Samaritans are doing with Jesus. Just like the Corinthian church did with Paul. Every single time somebody frees a group of people, there's this initial, I don't know how to walk. I don't know how to be free. Freedom Salem is so hard. That's why it's so much easier for us to be controlling. In every relationship you're in, it's so much easier to be controlling than it is to let people be free. Are we going to be friends when this is over? I hope so. Danielle, are we going to be friends? Thank God. It's an apocalypse. Jesus' presence shows up. And what does Jesus do to the Samaritans? He gently leaves. And one chapter later, tells the parable of the good. Say it. They reject him. And a few days later, he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. Because the way that you help an abused person get it right is through affirmation. Never forget I said that. Write it down, tattoo it on your face. The way that you help an abused person or people or situ whatever it is, is through affirmation. Reminding them of who they are in the Lord. Pastor, I think I may have, in, in various ways, maybe abused my children emotionally, spiritually. Affirm them. Don't try to go back and get everything right just today. Remind them that they're good. Because that's the thing that's been taken. But with the disciples, he rebukes them for wanting to call fire down from heaven. Why? Because Jesus wants to call fire down from heaven. And Jesus wants to redefine what calling fire down from heaven on other people looks like. You want to know what it looks like? The day of Pentecost. Tongues as of... That's how Jesus calls down fire. We call down fire to destroy. Jesus calls down fire to unite. He calls his baptism a fire. He calls the spirit a fire. He calls his passion a fire. He says, I wish that the world were salted with fire and oh, that it were already kindled. There's a difference when Elijah calls down fire, it destroys people. There's a difference when we call down fire, it destroys people. Jesus rebukes that spirit because when he calls down fire, it gives us tongues to understand the tongue of a person that is very different than us. It opens communication. It brings healing. So yes, we should be praying, even over our enemies, even over the person that cut you off in the car and then slowed down. Why'd you pull out if you were going to go slow? 
It's intentional. Pull out in speed. Don't pull out and slow down and go slower than I was going. Is this, I mean, I'm not crazy. Let's be civil. Let's have some standards. But when that happens, Lord, I need fire called down on me because the tongues I'm using in the car right now, I'm assuming are not the ones from the day of Pentecost. They're the ones that Satan brings up, not the ones that God brings down. You ever notice that in Babel, they were building a tower up to the heavens, from the bottom up, but at the end of the Bible, when John sees the new Jerusalem, it's coming, because going down towards other people is the way of Jesus. Building up and elevating over them is not. That's why God is always moving lower. And it's why our temptation is always to move higher. Jesus is crucified between heaven and earth to change the direction his people are moving. That's why in all of the escapist, rapturous traditions, we're always leaving, going up to an elitist place. But when Jesus told us to pray, he said, pray thy kingdom where? Thy kingdom, thy kingdom, thy kingdom, thy kingdom. Not go. He's moving this way because that's what humility does. It moves toward the wreckage. It moves toward the least. It moves toward the broken. That's an apocalypse. Why did the disciples want to call down fire? Because they have been abused also. The Jerusalem system at the moment is abusing everybody. Does everybody remember the story of the person who is possessed? It's a parable that Jesus told. They're possessed, and then uh, that, that demon leaves, and the house is swept neatly, and everything is put in place, and then you think that's the end of it, and then Jesus says, and now that it's swept and neatly put in order, seven more demons showed up. It's like, are they attracted? attracted to cleanliness. This is why I've been telling my parents my whole life, I'm not cleaning my room. Because if this room is neatly and put in order, seven demons are going to show up. Jen, will you tell, tell the kids at youth group this. Here's why you don't clean your room. Because demons will show up if it gets too clean. That's what Jesus said. It. Jesus said, it's words in red, baby. It's words in red. What is Jesus really saying? Why do demons show up to a house that's neatly in order? Because a world in which all of life's mysteries, moralities, standards are neatly organized and put in place is not human at all. Let's raise the hand. Who's married again? How many of you totally understand your spouse? I mean 100%. You totally get it. Did you put your hand up, Josh? You're, you're, you're in trouble. John, you're, <laughs> Steph, for the record, that hooting you hear is your husband who said he totally understands you. John got to church early today. John is trying to, yeah. The greatest 
mysteries in our life are the people we love the most and are the closest to us. Whenever we organize our moral standards, our views, and it is just a neat bookshelf where you can look at it and say, those are all the authors there. Those are all these. This is, or you open, if you open cabinets and the Tupperware doesn't burst out and hit you in the face with the force of 10,000 men. How many, if somebody buys us Tupperware one more time, I'm going to kill you. There's a sense in which there are things designed to be clean and neat, and then there are other things that if they're real, they're messy. Like we said, a house that is always clean is a house where there's tyrannical leadership. Come into my house, here's what you'll know. You'll know that children live here. Me, Sophia, and Theo. Whenever it's neat, whenever you can yell your view at somebody else and say it in 10 seconds, your view is not wide enough, deep enough, or strong enough. If you can say what you believe about anything that has taken place recently in five minutes or less, spend more time on it. It's too neat. It's too clean. It doesn't reflect life enough. There's always an asterisk, always a caveat, always something else. And here's Jesus saying, I am here to stop people from rejecting me. And the minute the Samaritans reject him, he doesn't rebuke them. The minute his disciples say, they're rejecting you, let's do something about it, he rebukes them. That's not neat and clean. He says to the guy last week who he saved from being possessed by legion, the guy says, follow me. And Jesus says, don't follow me. I don't want you to come with me. Stay here. Then Jesus goes to some other guy and says, follow me. Why? Because he's not neat and clean. He knows the dynamic of each human heart he's standing in front of. And sometimes the standards get messy per person. My son Theo is not Sophia. We have the starting points, but when you get into interactions, me in 2014 is not me in 2022. Jacqueline and I talk to each other differently. We relate differently. Our circumstances have changed, and so does the dynamic of even our arguing. It changes because things are different than they were. An argument about putting towels away is different when you have no kids than when you have them. With no kids, it's like, I want our house to look perfect. With kids, it's like, I might be drowning in laundry and towels soon to save my life. Could you put one thing away? Right? Like, everything changes. I'm trying to be humorous to not get into the deep, steep, very shark-infested waters of what we're all facing when we leave here today. But Jesus is calling us. He's revealing to us that if things, if our standards, if the way we run our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our friendships, our churches, if they're so neat and clean that they're ultimately predictable, something bad is bound to happen because it's not real. There has to be some holy mess if we're doing it the right way. If the priorities are set in order, There has to be some mess because we're choosing one thing over another and everything can't get done. If everything can get done, you're neglecting something. If you got everything done, you didn't spend enough time on at least one thing. 
every kid in this room should be like, thank you, Pastor Bill, for releasing me from the shackles of having to clean. But you're missing it. The kids are different than they were when I was a kid. We were better at being bad. So to get to something a little more simple, how do we avoid living in this extremism that the Samaritans and Jesus' disciples are living in? This, we love Jesus so much. He's been there for us the way nobody else has. Jesus is like, I want to come to Samaria. They're like, we're here for you. And Jesus is like, but I'm only going to stay for a couple of days because then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Like, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're not walking in Samaria anymore. After all I did. And then I was like, if they're not welcoming you in Samaria, let's kill them. Jesus is like, if I killed people who didn't welcome me, James and John, guess who would have been dead last week? When you sent your mom to me, to ask if you could sit at my right hand and left hand over against the other ten disciples. I would have killed you then. So how do we get through this? How do we get to the place where we could move slower? Where we could think a few seconds longer? Where we can be comfortable enough in our own skin to be ourselves, to move slow, and to be the kind of people who don't immediately reject and eliminate or accept too fast Some of us have gotten into a lot of troubles because we've accepted things too quickly. (laughs) We have to learn to hold on to Jesus without clinging to him. We have to learn how to hold on to Jesus without clinging to him. There's a way to hold him where we move where he moves where we go where he goes, where we feel what he feels, and there's a way to cling to him where we keep him from moving and wanting him to stay exactly where we are. Has anybody met a clingy person before? Does anybody have a clingy person sitting next to them right now? Just kidding. Don't respond. That was a joke. Dan, why was your hand up? Ron? Ron is not clingy. (laughs) How can we hold on to Jesus? When we connect to him in a way where we go where he goes and we breathe when he breathes and we rebuke when he rebukes and we bless when he blesses, when we can do that, we will enter relationships and the muddle of the day and bring light and health and healing to it. So Jesus gives us three ways. One person says to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is an apocalypse. He's not, he's simply revealing what is going on in this person's life. What's going on in this person's life is not wrong. Listen to me. I got to say one more thing before, before we go through this list and then we're going to have Eucharist and then Danielle will blow our minds one more time and then you all get to go home by 2 p.m. I promise. That's how it will be. So just one more thing. Everybody know how many times did Peter deny Jesus? That story, John, man, you're the worst. That story is in your Bible not to show you how to not deny Jesus. This is a difference in reading. The story of Peter denying Jesus. The story of James and John saying, we want to be at the top above these other guys. Those stories are not there as preventative measures to keep you from doing it. Who has succeeded in that? None of us. 
How many times have we been confronted with a situation and the way we handled it said, in other words, I do not know the man? The way we respond when we're angry, the way we respond when we're hungry, anyone? We deny him there. We deny him when we're agitated. We deny him when our guy didn't win the election. We deny him all these times. Why is the story of Peter there if not to help us prevent doing that? Here's why it's there. It's there to reveal what we will always do and to reveal what Jesus will always do back. I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. That's why it's there. It's not there as a warning shot to not deny him. It's there to tell you As you're growing up in the Lord, as you're learning to be a disciple, as you're trying to be sanctified, as you're growing and moving along in life, all the while, you will trip and fall down. You will. And every time, I will pick you up. What does it say in Proverbs? A righteous person falls how many times? And what does the number of seven mean? Perfect, wholeness, completion. Proverbs just said, a righteous person completely falls. Not a little, not kind of, not less as you get better. A righteous person falls seven times, completes the week of falling. And how many times does Jesus get him back up? Everyone. The Bible isn't written to prevent. It's written to show what we will always do while we're learning and how our Heavenly Father will keep teaching us to grow as life happens. So these three people that want to follow Jesus, this isn't a story of who has the wrong heart. This is how God's fatherly life enters ours and shows us not where we're wrong because Jesus doesn't eat from that tree and told us not to. Shows us where we need to be recreated. I want to follow you. Foxes have homes. Birds have homes. I don't have a home. What did he just reveal? He just revealed that all of us want to follow Jesus insofar as he will allow us to remain in a place that we call home while we follow him. I'll follow Jesus, but I want to have the church experience I've always had. I'll follow Jesus, but I want the theology I've always had. I'll follow Jesus but I want the social network I've always had. Don't you dare pull me into deeper theologies. Don't you dare teach me a new worship song. Don't you dare try to get me to be friends with that side of the room, which we all understand is like, you know, like don't, don't do that. Let me follow you. And Jesus says, you can't follow me like this because I'm going to be moving from place to place to place and you don't really want that. You want me to follow you here. But the first way that we hold and don't cling is to realize that following Christ is a tabernacle and not a temple. It's a tabernacle and not a temple. It's a movement. We are moving. Pastor Mark rightly had the inclination to call us Salem Tabernacle because he understood we move. We move with the wind of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus did. Jesus enters different situations and 
takes his goodness and his goodness bends over the situations the way a blanket would bend over items on the floor. You would see, like the goal is that the blanket is on the floor, but I, I know this from Sophia. Sometimes she tries to hide what she didn't put away. And when she throws the blanket over it, we can see what it is because the blanket falls over it, right? But there's something beautiful about that's how God's love works. It falls over the contours of our sin. It wraps itself around it. It doesn't immediately throw it away. It first embraces it and lets us know we're okay. And that love has a funny way of burning off that stuff. That's good news. It's good news. If we want to follow Jesus, he needs to create in us the desire to move geographically, personally, emotionally, theologically. You'll get stretched. You'll get pulled. You'll be uncomfortable. You'll move into some lands and know we might have ventured into the wrong place. Maybe we got to move back. Maybe this thing is going to eventually even itself out. Maybe we're in overcorrection mode. Maybe we're in fear mode and it's undercorrection mode. But all the while, we're moving. He's revealing that one of the reasons why we have agitation in our own self and in our relationships and in our communities is because we all want things to be the same as they always were, and that's always different from person to person. And as long as we're fighting for what makes the most sense to us, we will be taking what makes the most sense to somebody else. I'm going to be how many things to all people? There's a movement that is deeply uncomfortable about following Jesus, and he wants to create in us the capacity to move with our children through their seasons differently. This is why I like to use the word wisdom as opposed to principles, Christian principles, the Institute of Biblical Life principles, because principles are always solid. They're forced into situations. Wisdom bends, flexes, moves. And God is going to reveal to us where we are inflexible, where we don't move, but we demand movement from everybody else. He wants to loosen that up. That's all you have to do this week. Easy. No? The next person, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father first. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's he talking about? I'm sincerely asking you. I have no idea. What's he talking about? I'm just kidding. There's a lot of ways you could go with this. But an easy one first is how many of us say things like, I'm really going I'm, I'm to get this new routine in my life. I'm really going to get it together as soon as the summer's over. I'm really going to get it together. As soon as the kids are out of the house, as soon as so-and-so you know, moves, as soon as I get that new job, as soon as I get the new job and get comfortable with it. As soon as I get comfortable with the new job and get promoted, as soon as I get used to that promotion, it's like we have all these things where we're like, I'm really going to dig in when X happens. And then we get to that place and it's like, well, there's two more X's that need to, as soon as, okay, as soon as R happens, as soon as T happens, and we find ourselves always starting stuff and never getting three feet down the road with them. The easy one is January 1st. Man, we are all going to lose weight. 
until January 3rd. As soon as, dot, dot, dot. As soon as the winter's over. As soon as the spring's over. I'll get the summer body next year after this summer's over. It was a hard summer. Like Danielle said, has anybody had a week? Has anybody had a month? Has anybody had a life? It's just going to keep happening. So Jesus is saying, if you're always waiting, like if you want to follow me, but you know that this life event's going to happen, if you're always waiting for the next life event, you're always going to be waiting to follow me. But why so graphic? Because when we follow Jesus, we become crucified with Christ. Amen? So when we follow Jesus, we become dead in the right way to actually learn how to deal with the dead passing away in our life. And this is real. Jesus became the dead that could actually bury the dead in hope, not in despair. When we follow him and learn how to die, we face death very differently. Jesus is saying to this person, if you're about to face death, you need to come follow me first because I'm going to teach you how to face it. I'm going to teach you how to look at it. I'm going to teach you how to weep over it. Some of us have never learned to grieve. It's unfaithful. I've heard people say, I don't want my kids grieving over me when I pass away. You just said you don't want them to love you. Grieving, when people are present in our life, they make us happy and that's how we relate to them. When people pass away, it makes us sad and that's how we relate to them still. Jesus needs to teach us how to grieve so that we can bury the right way. So that we can bury the dead as seeds and not as finalities knowing it's going to grow in the resurrection again. As the church fathers always said, the most beautiful cemeteries are ce- the most beautiful gardens are cemeteries that nobody knows are gardens yet. So when Jesus says leave the dead to bury their dead, he's saying follow me and then I'll teach you how to face death. So it's not something you're afraid of. It's not something you run from. It's something you grieve over. It's something you can get angry at with a righteous indignation. It's something that can really affect your life, but it's also something that will not remove your hope. That's what he's saying. He's inviting us into a world that is so much more than we could ever think. That's why following Christ is tabernacle, not temple, and following Christ is now, not after. Not once X happens. It's today. Take everything undone in your life and recommit your life to Christ. Take everything that's not finished cooking yet and bring it all to Jesus. Some of you right now, you know, like we used to say when we would talk about things like, and I'm going to go here, so please, I love you. I know you love me too. We don't have to exchange pleasantries right now. We get to, you hear pastors talk about church attendance and all this kind of stuff. It's because we love you, number one. We love you too, Pastor Bill. Thank you, and I love you more. We used to say that we're preaching to the choir, but we're not preaching to the choir anymore. Because some of you, the most healthy ones in this room, some of the most healthy Christians these days, and I'm talking to my other pastor friends too, are two, maybe three Sunday a month Christians. That's the new health. That's not healthy. So what does this have to do with anything? This has to do with everything. Because deep down we know Deep down we know that when we're together, our life gets more healthy. 
When we worship together, our life gets more healthy. When we hear the Bible expanded for us, expounded on, given, we get more healthy. When we eat together, we get more healthy. And some of us are saying, I need to get that routine back. I need to get that consistency back. I'll do it when. Rebuke that voice. Do it now. Now, with all the sloppiness that it'll bring. Now. Before you're ready. Do it now. This is not shame-based. This is not legalistic. This is an invitation into what we all know is the most healthy. A consistent rhythm in your local church brings health to your life. If it didn't, you wouldn't be here right now. Everyone who clapped, I'll see you next week. <laughs> I might not be here next week, which is awkward. I should have waited until the week after. To... <laughs> Finally, the person says, I'll follow you. I just want to say farewell to my family. And Jesus is like, no. It's like, Jesus, come on. You don't want to say, I can't say bye to my family. Why is he saying that? Because, here's, this, is, this is an easy one. There's some real deep theology for all of these, but this is an easy one. Because that person thinks that following Jesus means you have to say bye to people. Following Jesus means you're going to learn how to say hello to those people for the first time. The fact that the person says, if I'm going to follow you, I need to say bye to my family, right there the apocalypse is working. Jesus says, you need to come follow me now without saying goodbye to them because I'm going to teach you that you never had to say goodbye to them in the first place. Jesus is not in competition with our family. Somebody said to me early on in the first couple of months I was pastoring here, said, how do I learn to love my son less? I'm like, love your son less? Has my mom been talking to you at all? No. <laughs> love your son less? Yes, because I'm supposed to love Jesus more. And I'm like, oh, God, let's sit down. Let's get coffee now. It's not Jesus' love is not in competition with our love for even our own children. What Jesus is saying is, you need to love them with the love that I'm giving you to love them with. A love that can let go and hold on at the same time. A love that knows when to release and when to run and rescue. A love that knows when to share the lesson and when to wait to share the lesson. Our loves are not in competition. And this person thinks, if I follow Jesus, I have to say bye to my family. And Jesus is saying, no, when you learn to follow me the right way, you will be reintroduced to your family and they will see the most healthy version of you that they've ever seen. But we have to follow. Following Christ is originative. It's not similar. And what do I mean by that? Following Jesus isn't similar to following a spouse or being committed to your natural family. Following Jesus is originative, meaning he originates in you what you need to bring to your family. He gives you things that your family can't give you to give them back. He gives you a humility. He gives you the ability to consider the interests of others above that of your own. He gives you the ability, you ready, to keep your word at your own hurt, but not keep your word at their own hurt. I've heard this so much in church that it's like we, we made this promise 
and we have to hold on to the promise to our own hurt. But what happens when the promise you made is a promise you never should have made, and holding on to it is going to hurt a lot of other people? See, Jesus teaches you how to navigate this stuff. Not so that you have to say, if you don't follow Jesus, you're going to have to say farewell to your family. If you don't follow Jesus, the next election could break the family up. If you don't follow Jesus, the next gun control conversation could break your family up. If you don't follow Jesus, the next time you join movement for social justice could break your family up. When you follow Jesus, he teaches us how to finally say hello to our families, not goodbye. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Worship team. John, I'm going to give you 15 minutes to come up here. Stretch, stretch the hammies, John. Sometimes in the Bible, <laughs> sometimes in the Bible, the Holy Spirit or the one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they leave a story open-ended to show us how judgmental we are. To show John how judgmental he is. Danielle, you've heard the story of the rich young ruler. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, sell all that you have. And he went away sad. And we don't hear the rest of the story. So we assume he didn't follow Jesus. Because we assume we would be happy if Jesus told us to sell all that we have. It doesn't say he didn't go sell all he had. It just says that he was sorrowful. Raise your hand if you'd be skipping to go sell all that you have. You ready? When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, it's, he said, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. So what if Jesus is interpreting to us the story of the rich young ruler? What if the rich young ruler went away sorrowful and we assume he's not going to sell what he has, but then when we hear Jesus in Gethsemane say, my soul is sorrowful, maybe sorrow is the emotion of a person who's about to sell all that they have. Was Jesus not giving us all that he had when he was sorrowful? So what if the rich young ruler had the pang of conviction that said, I do need to go, but it hurts to part with what I've idolized? See, the Bible, those stories, they're left open-ended to show us how we judge. And most of us assume that the woman at the well in John 4 was a prostitute, even though it never says she was. Most of us assume that the rich young ruler never sold all that he had. Most of us assume that the bad thief never said what the good thief ended up saying on the cross. It's showing us how we judge. We don't have the right to say how an open-ended story ended, but that story has the right to show us how we think it ended and reveal to us where we may be judgmental. Jesus never told any of these three guys that they can't follow him. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. But he never said not to follow him. I want to bury my father first. Jesus says, go bury your father and proclaim the kingdom of God there. Well, guess what? That's what he also said to the demoniac last week. 
So if the man that had a demon released from him is told, stay here and proclaim, the man who said, let me bury my own father, Jesus says, stay there and proclaim, maybe that man was healed in a way that we never expected. I want to say farewell to my family. No one who puts their hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus do? He becomes Alpha and Omega. So when we look back, he nudges us this way. And when we go too long this way, he says, don't forget where you've come from. But when we look back, he nudges us back this way again. You see what he does? He makes everything whole. He makes everything whole. So as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, I want us, I want you to hear what I told the worship team this morning. Jesus gives this meal to a room full of people who are about to leave him, deny him and betray him, and run away scared. He doesn't give it so that they won't. He gives it so that it could grow in the toxic soil of their sin. This meal isn't a meal given to prevent us from messing up. It's a, it's a seed that can grow in the messy soil of thorns and thistles. It's meant to grow in the areas of our life that are messed up. It's meant to grow in the areas of our life that need recreating. It's meant to grow slowly in the areas of our life that need reorienting. It's not preventative. It's a meal that when you're in the thralls of issues, it says remember that way and remember a forward that I'm coming. Remember that I died and remember that I'm coming. And that sustains us and tightens us up in the middle of a situation that's making us feel weak. So receive this meal this morning, not as, now that I took it, I'm going to have this extra energy to not do anything wrong. This meal will activate itself in your life when things start to go wrong. It will remind you of who Jesus is and who you are. It'll reveal, it'll, it'll make an apocalypse happen this week that will reveal to you the areas of your life where Jesus is saying, let there be. There needs to be something new. Noah's sons walked in backwards and covered their father. Jesus walks in frontwards, takes the cover off, and heals the shame, and heals the guilt. He does better than cover. He uncovers and he heals. Would you close your eyes this morning? Some of you, you've settled for the first covering. At least my shame is covered. And every time God goes to put his hands on that sheet, you're rebuking Satan. It's not Satan. The Holy Spirit wants to uncover the shame, the sense of unworthiness, and heal you. Covering can sustain you until Jesus comes to heal you. But he wants to heal you so that we could be naked and not ashamed. Able to be who we really are, mess and all, and know that we're moving toward holiness with Jesus and that he's patient. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed, you took bread. 
And when you had given thanks, you broke it and you gave it to us. And you said, this is my body which is broken for you in what you're about to go and do. As often as you eat this bread, and he's saying to them, please remember what you're going to do wrong tonight does not cause you to lose your invitation to this table. As often as you come back to this table that you're always invited back to, come back and eat in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would descend on this bread and make this bread for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also that we would allow you to reveal to us where you want to heal us, to not run from that revelation, but embrace it, trust you in it, and know that you are not going to violate us. You're going to heal us. You're not going to make us right as opposed to wrong. You're going to heal us and give us the anointing to bring healing to the lives of others. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. If you would like to come to the front, the ushers will release you from the back to the front. This side of the room you can come down and receive here. This side of the room you can come down and receive here. And as you eat this meal, know that this meal will be released into your life when you need it this week. It'll grow in the mess. Would you worship with us this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.